We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. Matthew 24, 1 through 28. God's word says, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when, the, when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mountain of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And, when will, uh, and what will be the sign of your coming and, and of the end of, of the ages? Jesus answered, watch out, no one watch out so that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over and to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by many nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from their faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof to, uh, of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or, or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, though in those days, uh, for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, as if that was possible. See, I, I have told you, you, I have told you I have ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Amen. You may see it. Turn back just a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 18. We've been walking through talking about meaningful membership. What does it mean for a church to have a healthy understanding 
of what church membership is. Today we come to probably one of the more difficult topics in the entire conversation. Um, One that pastors, even as great as Jonathan Edwards, ended up being fired for, for preaching on this particular topic. Many people do not appreciate this topic, but we will, it's in Scripture and we will deal with it as best as we can. We're calling this restorative church discipline. I want to kind of give you an introduction, kind of my background on uh, understanding healthy churches and especially um, this particular topic of restorative church discipline. Uh, Growing up, we never really talked about it per se, yet our church did practice it. I remember one very specific instance. um, There's a few times I saw it practiced, but one very specific instance, there was a um, probably uh, early 20s uh, aged young man in our church, uh, and there was, uh, he had been having a uh, intimate relationship with a girl that was my age, and that was 16 at the time. Um, he had an intimate relationship with her. She blew the whistle on him. Uh, cops were involved, so everybody already knew about it because the police were involved and things like that. And uh, our church called him to repentance. And uh, in order for him to, uh, uh, to maintain his, his, uh, his uh, consistence in the church, he was called to repentance, which he did. Thankfully, praise the Lord, he did uh, repent before the church. Um, and, and then, uh, as would be expected, there was some uh, restrictions on two age groups he was able to work with for the rest of his duration being there. Um, but I remember that specific situation uh, very, very clearly. And I had no idea what it was. I, I didn't know exactly what was going on. I figured, okay, well, this was a really big, big deal, so we had to take care of it. Um, makes sense. But then I got introduced in a college class when we talked about the doctrine of the church in a college class. I got introduced to this more formally uh, with the topic of church discipline or what we're calling restorative church discipline. Uh, I was introduced to that in my, it would be my junior year of college. Uh, I was introduced to this idea. I wrote my paper on that, on this particular topic in that class. Um, and uh, continue to grow in my understanding as I continue to read on the doctrine of the church and to read on being what it means to be a healthy church and continue growing over the last decade. Uh, I've been growing and growing and growing in my, in my understanding of this. And you'd think that if you are interested in a topic and spend about 10 years studying it, you'd probably know all of it, right? No. This week I sat down getting ready to saying, okay, well, we, gotta, we should probably talk about this and we'll explain why in just a second. Um, but we need to deal with this because it's, it's, it's kind of the, the next most logical step in our, in our discussions here. And um, I picked up a book this week. And I was like, okay, well, maybe this guy will help me out. I, I read some commentaries. Maybe this, will, maybe this guy will help me kind of understand some things I'm reading in the commentaries. Started reading it, and I was like, oh, great. Now it's like I didn't know anything. You know, it was, it was just brand new, opening up my eyes to a, whole, a much broader picture um, uh, so I, I, want to, I want you to know I'm still learning when it comes to this particular topic. So I want to share with you what I'm learning and kind of how that all wraps into our conversation here. 
Today, we're not going to deal with this exhaustively. Uh, don't think that we're going to go through and, and talk about uh, this situation is where we do this, and this situation is where we should do this. We don't, we don't want to do that today. We really want to just kind of introduce what, it, what does the Bible mean? What is it talking about when it talks about this particular subject? Um, and if needed, we can even pick up and, and deal with this some more after Easter to kind of continue through. Uh, I do want to recommend, uh, those of you guys who know me know I like to recommend books. Um, these two books I've been, I've been using through this, uh, through this study on, on church membership. Um, these two books have been extremely helpful. Um, it's Church Membership and Church Discipline, both by Jonathan Lehman, uh, part of the Nine Marks group. Um, these two books have been fantastic, absolutely fantastic. They're short, they're easy to read. Um, they're about 10 or 15 bucks, something like that. But if, if you wanted to dig into some of these things, understand what's going on, I would highly recommend pu- uh, pulling out those books. So let's, let's uh, with that being said, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to read verses 15 through 20. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, beginning in verse 15, it says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. This is Jesus speaking. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this difficult topic, I pray that you would give us understanding, that Lord, we would you would help us to understand what it is that you are communicating to us in your word. What it is that you are calling churches to in your word here. Pray that you just give us give us clarity of mind and help us to uh, humble ourselves before your word. In your name, amen. So kind of to recap the last couple of weeks, we, we started a couple of weeks ago talking about we need to rethink the way we think of a church. A church is not just a social club, rather a church is an embassy for the kingdom of God. It's an embassy on earth for the kingdom of God, the future kingdom of God. So we see, uh, we saw that about the church two weeks ago as we looked at how the, how the New Testament speaks about churches. This is why we don't see what we often think of about church membership and churches. We don't see that necessarily in Scripture because Scripture has a totally different way that it's thinking about it than we often do uh, today. We also looked last week, at, uh, we looked at what, we asked the question, what is a church? And what is church membership? We came away with these two definitions. Uh, a, a church is, uh, what, it, what the definition of a church, a, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. 
We also looked at a definition of what a church member is. And last week we said this, church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. Now, if you're thinking, okay, I missed all that. Can you go over that again? You know what? It's on the website go online at fbcgordon.org and you can listen to last week's sermon. It's right there. Um, just a little plug there for the website. There you go. These two ideas that we see effectively make church members people who are authorized through the power of the Holy Spirit by the agency of the local church to be official representatives of Jesus to the world. That's essentially what scripture describes church membership to be. Thus far, we have asked whether local churches and church membership is biblical. We found the answer is yes. And we have asked what a church is, especially last week focusing on the institutional aspects of the church and church membership, which is essentially this covenant relationship between the church and its members, similar to the I do's of a marriage ceremony. And as we mentioned last week, Jesus only talks about the church twice in the Gospels. He talks about it twice. He mentions the church only twice in the Gospels. We saw last week that Christ builds the church on confessions of faith and confessors, and that he gives authoritative keys to the church. Today we will look at the second time Jesus mentions the church, and we will see one way in which the keys function through what is commonly called church discipline, although we will emphasize this act is essentially, is not essentially an act of punishment, but is a process whose end desire is always, let me emphasize that, the end desire of church discipline is always restoration. Always. Never an act of punishment, always, a des the desire is always an act of restoration. But before we dive into Matthew 18, we must back even further than we have thus far gone. We must first clarify what the gospel is. And if you've got an outline this morning, I've got some definitions there, some, some different opinions, some different versions of how people explain the gospel. There are, many, there are, in many churches like ours, at least two understandings of the gospel. The first understanding you see in your outline says this, God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God, but God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We are not justified by works, we're justified by faith alone. The gospel therefore calls all people to just believe. An unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. The second is similar sounds a little bit different. You might notice this difference here that says this. God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God. But God sent his son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven and begin to follow the son as king and Lord. Anyone who repents and believes can have eternal life. A life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. But the faith which works is never alone. The gospel therefore calls all people to repent and believe. God loves you despite your sin and will take you contrary to what you deserve. 
and then enables you by the power of the Spirit to become holy and obedient like His Son. By reconciling you to Himself, God also reconciles you to His family, the church, and enables you as His people to represent together His holy character and triune glory. The first understanding sees Christ as Savior. The second understanding sees Christ as both Savior and Lord. There are many other subtle differences that you'll see between those two, uh, between those two uh, versions of the gospel, and we could observe those. But, but first, let me clarify. The, the first is not a false gospel. Well, let me be clear about that. The first one is not a false gospel. The first one is not saying that if you believe in Jesus, he'll give you a million dollars. That would be a false gospel. The first one is not saying that Jesus is not really the Son of God and you just need to be like Jesus and then you'll be fine. That's not, that would be a false gospel. The first one is not a false gospel. But it stops short of the full counsel of God's Word. It may be a good place to start, but it should never be the place to end as a Christian. In the end, the first version of the gospel will call someone to get saved but has hardly any reason to move beyond that. The second version, however, leads to an understanding of the kind of grace that calls Christians to take up their crosses and follow Jesus in holy mission. So before we can move forward, we must understand that if our understanding of the gospel stops at the first version, then the rest of this message today will mean nothing to you. If our understanding stops at the first version, the rest of this sermon will be confusing at best and will sound unloving at worst. The first version of the gospel of this, this first version will see no need for the idea of church discipline. And passages like ours today in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, or Galatians 6, 1, which says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Or Ephesians 5.11, which says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Or Titus 3.10, which says, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. Or 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15, which says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Or 2 John verses 9 and 10, which says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching as both Father and the Son, um, whoever abides in the teaching as both the Father and the Son, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And in 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul ultimately recommends that the church deal with a particular sinful member by delivering him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. These verses will make no sense if your understanding of the gospel stops at the first version. However, with the second version, 
we can begin to have a conversation about why restorative church discipline is healthy for the church and loving both toward the individual and those unbelievers who look on from the outside. So let's turn to our text. Let's walk through this passage. What is Jesus talking about here? We find ourselves in the middle of a teaching section that Jesus is going through. And verse 15 through 20 is kind of, it kind of moves on to a next subject, but it is really connected to the stuff right before it. In fact, if you look right before that, starting in verse 10, it says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, talking about children, Um, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should, should perish. This idea of church discipline is put in the context of this leaving the 99 to find the one. Church discipline is always restorative in nature, and it's always urgent, as we'll see later. You leave the 99 to go and find the one. You're not looking to kick the one on the ground. Any understanding that sees church discipline as an act where you kick the person who's wounded and you kick him on the ground would be a bad understanding. It would be abusive, not loving. So we must understand as we come to this passage, when we see these steps that Jesus requires us to take, it is always with that in mind that we must leave the 99 to go find the one. So we begin in verse 15. It says, starts out with, if your brother sins against you. If your brother sins against you. We first first notice that the you language, the second person pronoun, this you language in this particular case is in the singular, right? So this is you, not y'all, all right? Y'all would be if it's to multiple people. This is you, not y'all, all right? Um, so this is a one-on-one thing. So this is if your brother, this is talk, not talking about your, your, your natural family. It's talking about if your fellow brother in Christ, your fellow brother or sister in Christ, someone who else who is a believer, if they sin against you, here is what you do, right? Now we also must understand this is an if, right? Jesus is saying when this circumstance comes up, if it comes up, this is what you need to do. He's not saying it will always come up and you always need to do this every single time, no matter what. He's saying when it does come up, if it comes up, this is how you should deal with it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. I usually like to use this as an illustration. Uh, Again, I've usually taught this in youth groups, and I'll pick on one of the students. Today I'll pick on Albert. He's sitting right here, and he's our youth director. So this would be, let's say, Albert decides that he's going to misrepresent me to someone else in the church, right? Albert goes to Janice and says, did you know that Justin hates people with glasses? There you go. See, he's already starting on me, right? That Justin hates people with glasses. Did you hear that about him? And I find out about that. My first response is to sit down with Albert and say, hey, I heard that you said this about me. Right? You know it's a lie. 
never said that, right? And call them to repentance, right? Call them to ask for forgiveness and, and, to, and to repent of that sin. You tell him his fault between you and him alone, right? You and him alone. Obviously, if it would be inappropriate to do so, that would be something else to consider. A single guy probably should not go to a single girl and say, you know, um, I saw that you were lusting after me, and I really wanted to confront you about that. Probably not a great situation to do that alone, right? That probably would be unsafe, unhealthy, just going to lead to more sin anyway. So that would be, you know, again, make sure you understand there is context here as well. Uh, make sure, but, it's, but in other words, the, 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 the idea here is pri- it's, it's, a, it's a personal thing. It's a one-on-one. It's personal. It's to keep the group as small as possible from the start. Go and tell us fault between you and him alone. Now, here's the cool thing. This is where it shows that, that this, the process is always with the idea of res- restoration in mind. He says here, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's a good thing. Right now, think about this. Me and Albert, if I know Albert has been spreading lies about me, there's a break in our relationship, right? We can't just be buddy-buddy. We can't just hang out because I know that he's mess- been messing around and saying stupid stuff about me. There's going to be a strain in the relationship. Now, if I go to him and I say, hey, this is what happened and you need to, you, you know, you need to repent of this. You, you were lying and you know lying is sin. You need to repent of that. And he says, you're right. I, it, was, it was wrong and I'm sorry about that. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and tell Janice, that, uh, that you didn't really say that and make sure that gets cleared up and, and uh, we'll make sure that that's settled, right? You know what I can do after that? I can grab Albert around the neck and say, love you, brother. And welcome him back. We, we can, the relationship will be completely restored. But Jesus makes another statement, though. He ver- start, continues on in verse 16. He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now that kind of sounds weird. Why? Why two or three people? Why would that be the case? Now, in legal cases in this time, it was a requirement for there to be two or three witnesses for a case to be valid. Uh, you can remember this at Jesus' crucifixion. This is the same thing. There was false witnesses that came forward and accused Jesus of this. They knew they were false witnesses, yet they went along with them anyway, but there had to be enough witnesses to make a legal, uh, a legal case for Jesus to be killed. And that was the kind of the case there. This, that, that precedent actually comes, I think it's from Leviticus 19, where that requirement is made for any kind of, of legal proceedings. There has to be two or three witnesses. So this kind of comes from that idea. But what Jesus is saying is not, you need to make sure that the way you govern yourselves looks just like the legal system. It's not what he's saying. He's, what he is saying is, is, if the legal system does that, you need to at least do that. Right? You need, to be, you need to have a better reputation than the legal system. You need to work on things better than they do, right? So you need to, you need to, you need to do that. And then also think of it that, think of it, what the idea here is, is that now let's say I get me and, and, uh, and, and Les and Ed, and we go and talk to, to Albert, right? Albert said, nope, I'm going to keep lying and telling people you hate glasses, right? And I say, okay, let me grab some deacons. We're going to go talk to Albert. Right? Now there's some pressure on Albert, right? He knows that he's, he's in the wrong, right? Or, or he maybe, maybe he has a chance to, to uh, defend himself and say, look, 
what he said was that people with glasses look funny, and I just took that to mean whatever. And I, was, I didn't say that. What are you talking about, man? Or maybe I did say that, and it was taken out of context. I don't know. Whatever. Please, guys, don't understand. I do not hate people with glasses. This is just an illustration, right? Come on, Albert. <laughs> Church discipline right now. No, um, but no, so, but bringing in two or three witnesses, it gives us the opportunity for, for those witnesses to say, okay, what's the story here? What's, is this lining up? Is this story making sense? Can we really see what's going on here? And there's also added pressure on him. Now he knows that there's other people getting involved and he has another opportunity to repent, right? What happens at this point if he's refused to repent? What's starting to show about his heart? One of the marks of a Christian is that they are repentant. If a person refuses to repent, they are showing about their heart that they may not be a believer. If they're unwilling to repent of clear sin, they may not be a Christian. Because that's part of what we're trying to show to Albert. Look, look, Albert, you're not acting like a believer. You're not acting like a Christian. We want to call you back. We want you back in the fold, man. We want to, we want to restore this relationship and be in brotherly unity with one another. But right now, you're not acting like a Christian, right? And then you bring two or three witnesses, and hopefully you can bring that, bring that extra, extra oomph to the situation. And hopefully he says, you guys, you know what? You're right. And if he repents at that point, you know what we do? Hug him like a brother, just like the first time. We restore him just as we would have restored him beforehand. But what happens if Albert, even with two deacons with me, come to him and confront him with his sin, and he says, no, I'm going to keep telling everybody that Justin hates people with glasses. I'm done with it. I, 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 I know it, you know, sure, it's a lie, whatever, I don't care. I'm done. I'm going to keep going. Right? And he continues along that path. Right? Maybe he doesn't say it, but maybe he just doesn't like me and he wants to continue ruin, ruining my reputation because he wants to be the pastor of the church, right? If, I, if he, I keep spreading this lie about G, Justin hating people with glasses, maybe then they'll let me be the pastor, kick Justin out, I get to be the pastor. Awesome, right? We don't know. That might be the motives that are going on here. Jesus continues in verse 17. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. Acts chapter 1 hasn't happened yet. Yet Jesus is already showing, he's already demonstrating, he's already calling out that there is going to be a church, a local church, that is going to take care of these things. In this particular case, it only makes sense for him to be talking about a local church. We talked last week, there's a distinction between the local church, that's a, a, a particular gathering of people, and the universal church that is all believers in all times through all the ages. If this is a situation where only the people who know Albert are going to be the ones who know about this, what are we going to, do we need to call every Christian in the entire world to talk about this? No, that wouldn't make any sense whatsoever, right? So Jesus is clearly describing the local church and the local church situation. He says, if you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is the second time Jesus mentions the church. The second of two times that Jesus refers to the church. So now the congregation is all aware of this. My situation with Albert, now you guys all know about it, right? So what do we do? We discuss it. We try to find out what's going on. What happens if everyone in the congregation says, you know what, Justin, we agree that he's lying about you and we need to take care of this situation, right? 
or we know that we know that he's lying about you. So here's what you know. We all agree on this. Now again, in verse 17, what's interesting here is still uses the singular you. So it says, um, if if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you singular as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, if the church is all in agreement that this is the case, then my relationship with Albert needs to change. Right? I need to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. We'll get to that in a second. But I think it's sometimes overemphasized in, in the literature about, about this subject that, that because this is in the singular you, that means that the church has nothing to do with this decision. In fact, I think that the next verses will actually clarify that for us. But let's talk for a second. What does this mean to treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector? What would that mean? Let him be to me as a Gentile and a tax collector. Well, both of these groups would have been considered outsiders. People who were outside the church. In other words, if this situation with Albert was going on, what I would need to do is treat him as someone who is outside the church, who is not a believer. Now, what does a person do with someone who's not a believer? Do we shun him? Do we ignore him? Do I spit at him when I walk across the street with him, from him? No, what do I do? Albert, let's talk about the gospel, man. You're not living like a Christian right now. You're not functioning like a Christian. A Christian would repent of their sin. You are clearly in the wrong, and you still refuse to repent. Man, you need the gospel. The best I can tell right now, you're not a Christian. You need to hear the gospel. If not, if you are indeed a Christian, you need to repent and start acting like one. To treat them as an unbeliever means to share the gospel with them. What this also shows is there's a change in the relationship, right? Because he is now someone I must treat like an unbeliever, there's a change in my relationship with him. No longer can me and Albert just sit and just have buddy-buddy conversations. We can't just sit and talk about the concert we went to. We can't just sit around and talk about the, 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 the game we just watched. No, every conversation I have with Albert is going to be intentional. Man, you need to hear the gospel. I can't, I can't just hang out with him anymore. Now there's an intentional intentionality of bringing him back, restoring him. Yes, he may have been sent out and, and the, the church has decided that he needs to be treated like, a, like an unbeliever. But that means we need to go to him. And every time I talk to Albert, it's got to be a serious conversation about his repentance and his walk with Christ. There's a change in the relationship as the process continues to urge them to repentance. But it also stands to reason that if the church has agreed that Albert is in the wrong, that the church would also follow suit, right? If they also agree that he's wrong, that he is a sinner, and that he needs to be treated like, a, like someone who is a Gentile and a sinner, and he needs to be treated like an outsider, that the church would join me in that pursuit of him. And every one of your conversations with Albert will be the same, intentionally seeking his repentance. So when we see this word, you might hear the word and associated with this is the word excommunication. This is the part where the church excommunicates someone or bans them or something to that effect. This is the end result of church discipline, the last final straw, the end result of church discipline. What this literally means, the word excommunication, if you were to think about this word, at least like excommunication, right? You're refusing them to take the Lord's Supper. They are not acting like a believer. The Lord's Supper is for believers only. Therefore, we are not going to let him take the Lord's Supper here because he's not acting like a believer. And that would be eating death to himself, as Scripture would tell us. 
right? First Corinthians tells us if you have a, something against your brother to make that right before you come to the Lord's table. And here we have someone who's unrepented in their sin. So what do we do? You can't participate in this with us. We love you too much to let you participate in this with us. They'd be still welcome to come to services. Albert can come every week. He wouldn't be a youth director anymore. That would be unhelpful. But he's welcome to come into, this, into these doors and hear the gospel every single week. But there's going to be some privileges that he's going to lose. He's not going to be able to vote in our business meetings. Because how in the world could he know God's will if he's acting like an unbeliever? How could we be certain that he's going to act in God's will if he's, if he's, uh, if he's not acting like a believer? Verses 18 through 20. There's an interesting shift in the pronoun. It shifts from you to y'all. There's a shift here from you to y'all, to the plural word for you. It says here, truly I say to you, all of you, y'all, whatever you collectively bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where there uh, two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We saw this idea of binding and loosing last week. What it essentially is, is the power, is power, authority from Jesus given to the congregation to to affirm or deny someone's belief in Jesus Christ. If their life does not match up with what we see the gospel doing, it is our responsibility to say, we are, you're not a believer and you need to hear the gospel, right? And when somebody joins the church, what we are saying is, is we see that your understanding of the gospel, that your life is in, is in correlation with that and, it, and, it, and you are living a life of repentance and so on and so forth. It's an act, uh, it's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the authority given to the church to act on behalf of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what this binding and loosing talks about. We, the church is acting on behalf of heaven when it does this. And again, it uses the same language we saw last week in, in chapter 16. So it's not that we do something and now heaven's like, oh, they made that decision. I guess we got to change the books and make sure that we do what they said. But no, rather what's going on, this interplay between the Holy Spirit and the local church, if we are following and being obedient to the Lord, that is, and we are, we are walking in His will, if, if that is the case, that what, what the, this authority is, is that the decision has already been made in heaven, and we are just acting on the decision that's already been made in heaven. Right? So it's by the power of the Holy Spirit and with His guidance, the church is given this particular authority. So as this is, is an introduction, let's Look at your uh, notes, and we've got some things we want to take away from this. What is church discipline? What is it? What does it look like? What does it mean? We see first that church discipline is a call to repentance. Every step in the process is a call to repentance. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking to kick people out. We're not looking to shove people around. We're looking to see people come back to Christ. We're looking to see people repent of their sin and grow in their relationship with Christ. That's what our goal is every single time. Is a characteristic of a Christian is to repent. This we see in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It says, this is the message we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Christians repent because otherwise they're calling God a liar about their sin. Second, we see church discipline is as private as possible. In most situations, it should never come to the point where the church has to act. In most situations. Because hopefully that person is indeed a believer and they will join in in repentance. It's as private as possible. The groups get progressively larger only when the person continues to be unrepentant. Next, we see that church discipline is an urgent process. It is an urgent process. We saw already this is in the context of leave the 99 to go and find the one. It's how urgent Jesus takes this idea of church discipline. We should be willing to drop everything and go and find those who are straying. Leave the 99 to go find the one. It's urgent. And along with this, we also see throughout this process, this is not taken lightly. This is not something we do flippantly. It's a serious matter. When I come to Albert and call him to repentance, it's not, hey man, you know that one thing? Yeah, if you want to repent, that's all right. If you don't want to repent, that's okay. We're all good. No, I want him to repent. Man, come back to the Lord. Give up this sin and return to your Lord. It's an urgent thing. It's not taken lightly and it's also not taken in the spirit of hate. Right? If I go to Albert and say, look man, you better repent or I'm going to kick you out. Just know, that's all we're doing here. You, you repent, you do what I want you to do, or I'm kicking you out. Right? We don't do that either. The, the goal is always to seek repentance. We want repentance. We want repentance. Unfortunately, unfortunately, sometimes people's lack of repentance leads to a place where we do have to make a decision as a congregation. And that final process does need to take place. The next point there is church discipline is loving to the individual. It may not seem like it. In fact, most of the time when this gets introduced to churches, it's often understood as being very unloving. Let me assure you, the way Jesus describes this, the way Paul describes this in, the, in his writings, church discipline is loving to the individual. Think about this. That person needs to know that they are in sin. If we let them sin without consequences, we are, what are we telling them about sin? If we ignore this, let Albert go around and spread lies about things, if we let that happen, what are we telling him about his sin? It's not a big deal. God doesn't really care that much about it. It's just a little white lie. It's not a big deal. What are we telling him? What are we communicating to him? We're communicating to him the exact opposite of the gospel. Church discipline, we also see it is loving to the individual because it does reveal their heart. It does reveal their heart. How, how terrible 
for Albert to get to heaven, if he's not really a believer, Albert to get to heaven, and Jesus says, sorry, I didn't know who you were, and he says, but First Baptist Church Gordon said I was saved. What in the world? They, I was a member there. How come, how, come, how come I'm not saved? They said I was. What a tragedy. It is loving to the individual to call them to repentance. They need to know that they are in danger of hell. It is loving to share the gospel with someone who needs to hear the gospel. Second, or, or, along with that, church discipline is loving to the unsaved. We don't often think about this aspect. But as much as we may hate to think about it, those who are outside are absolutely looking in. They are absolutely looking in. And the way we function on issues like this, they draw all their conclusions about what a church is, about what Christians are, by what we do. The lost world around us already believes that we're hypocrites. And why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they believe that? When churches claim that to be a Christian is to live a different lifestyle and ignore those who claim to be Christians and a part of our church who do not live differently, how can they take us seriously? How can they possibly take us seriously? It destroys our witness to the community when sin is allowed to continue without, without confrontation. How could they possibly take us seriously? How could they possibly take Jesus seriously? This leads us to our last section here, our last summary point. Church discipline is healthy for the local church. If you get diagnosed with cancer, if you say, oh, I don't want to be mean to the cancer. I want to love it, right? I want to show the cancer that I really love it. So I'm going to let it stay there. Do you do that when you have cancer? Some of you have fought cancer in here. Is that what you do? No, you get it out. Because it is not healthy for your body to have cancer attached to it. It will destroy you from the inside out. The same is true of sin in the church. It will destroy a church from the inside out. It will destroy a church from the inside out. Jesus says a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. If we allow unrepentant sin to continue on, we are corrupting ourselves from the inside out. Whether, you not, whether or not you agree, when we call someone a member, whether or not you agree that this is the way things are, that what it actually is, this is the way the outside of our church believes. This is what they actually think about us. Whether or not you agree, when we call someone a member, we are saying that our members are Christians who are walking faithfully with Christ. We are saying that our members are people who represent Jesus to the world. So what we do in church discipline, we are protecting the name of Jesus. We're protecting his name. So you know he takes sin seriously and we take sin seriously too. Not saying that we don't sin. Please take that, please take, understand that. We're not saying like, well, we don't sin, so we gotta tell all those other sinners to quit sinning. No. What's the difference? Hopefully, when we sin, we repent. Yes, we are sinners. The church is full of sinners. We would not be here if we did not believe we were sinners. Because part of the gospel is to believe that we are indeed sinners. And despite our sin, God loved us enough to save us. 
despite our sin. And the Christian walks in repentance. And when we don't walk in repentance, we're not acting or living like a Christian. And to protect the name of Jesus to our community, to protect the name of Jesus to that person, to protect the health of our church, something needs to be done about it. Let me ask you a few questions as we close out. Some application points. Have you surrendered to Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, have you surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you surrendering your life to live and walk in obedience to Him? Have you trusted Him for your salvation? He died on a cross, and not only did He die, but He rose again three days later for your sin and for mine, so that we might have real, true life. Apart from Christ, there is no life. Are you a Christian? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Secondly, when is the last time you had the courage to confront your brother or sister in their sin with this church, or, or, or in this church with their sin? When's the last time you had the courage to say, you know what, that person, I need to, I need to talk to them. I need to talk to them about it. Not picking up specks, right? Not, not, not trying to be like, well, you, you told the white lie that one time. I want to get that speck out of there, right? Not picking out specks, but out of concern for their walk with Christ, urge them to repentance. Let me switch the question back on yourself. Are you walking in repentance? Is there sin in your life that you are unwilling to turn away from? That you're okay to keep that as your little pet sin? Do you hide it and you protect it? Make sure nobody sees it and you're okay with it. Right? Make sure you really, really hide it when you come into church. Then you bring it right back out. Take care of it, feed it. Do you have unrepentant sin in your life? Or are you hardening your heart in some area? Finally, church, are we faithfully doing our duty to protect the name of Jesus through faithfully practicing restorative church discipline? Are we loving our members in the way Jesus has called us to love them? Are we loving our community by showing them the difference Christ really ought to make in the life of a Christian? Are we doing that as a church? Maybe you're here today and you are not part of a church. You haven't joined a church. As we've seen the last couple of weeks, Christians have a responsibility to be a part of a local church for their own benefit, for their, not, or to, not only to affirm their salvation, to show that they, to, to affirm that they are walking with Christ, but also for that accountability, also to surrender to that discipleship and a formal covenant relationship with the church. If you're here today and you're interested in joining our church, I'd love to talk to you about that. Grab me after the service. I'd love to chat with you about what that means, what that looks like. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. Lord, it's a tough passage. It goes against everything that our individual, individualized, Americanized versions of Christianity have said. Lord, it is clear in your word. 
that you do not allow people who are unsaved to remain a part of your, to, to be a part of your universal church. Lord, why in the world would we be okay with people who are unsaved being part of our local church? Or may we as a church seek to have our congregation as much as possible reflect your congregation. Pray that you would give us the strength to do this, that you would help us to, Lord, if there's things we're still struggling with and understanding your word, Lord, I know I don't know everything about this subject. I don't know everything about, about all this, Lord, but I, I pray that you would help me to submit and grow in my understanding, Lord, and that we as a church would also submit to your word about what it means to be a healthy church. I pray this in your name.